0: Hey, deserving listeners, I finally have some time to answer some patron emails. So let's get to it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, a professor, and a podcaster. This first email is from patron Bronwyn. She writes, we've been having a bit of a discussion on the fan page about the blow up of the podcast of late. Long term listeners have voiced some feelings of jealousy or feeling slightly threatened, or just simple shock at the seeming overnight increase in followers. So just chiming in here, the podcast has been going for 12 years, and there's been a steady growth, shall we say, (laughs) very slow, steady growth over 12 years. And then recently, I started doing these reaction videos on YouTube, and uh, it's been getting some uh, some views. And so there's a a lot of new people are discovering the podcast. So uh, apparently on the Facebook fan page, Bronwyn is saying, I don't go to that page because I want people to feel like they can say whatever they want to say. And so Bronwyn says that on the fan page, long term listeners have voiced some feelings of jealousy or feeling slightly threatened, or just simply shock at the seeming overnight increase in followers. Everyone also concurs how genuinely happy they are for your success. I've been wanting to ask you about parasocial relationships for a while now. So just chiming in, parasocial relationships are relationships where it's one way in that if you really have an emotional connection with someone who is in the media, like a podcaster or an actor or something or a politician or something like that. Okay, so I've been wanting to ask you about parasocial relationships for a while now. A number of YouTubers I follow have troubles coping with their position. Suddenly, thousands of people assume parasocial intimacy for them, which can only necessarily go one way. There are stalkers, trolls, inappropriate correspondence, lewd photos being sent to them, gifts, proposals uh, to deal with, this sort of thing. Not to mention how it affects online dating for them. When I began listening to you and discovered you actually do respond to emails, it was a wonderful revelation and an undeniable therapeutic experience for me. You held space for me, deftly and succinctly. It was healing. Of course, your long experience as a therapist gives you tools above and beyond one's average YouTuber, but still you strike me as pretty masterful. How's it going now with so much more traffic to deal with? I would love to hear you talk about parasocial relationships. You may well be in, you may well be the international expert on the topic. <laughs> I don't know about that one, but I know you've written a paper on aspects of being a therapist and being a podcaster, which you asked patrons to read through and edit typos case in point but I'd love. I'd love to hear an update and also your thoughts on parasocial relationships. Also, what is it for you to be a listener and a viewer? End of email. Wonderful email, patron Bronwyn. And Bronwyn is a long-term listener, and we have corresponded with her and worked with her on things. And actually, very soon, because we reached another Patreon goal, we are going to be doing a... A scholarship, and we're going to be doing another scholarship. But we're also going to add, I think at the suggestion of Bronwyn, a art award of $1,000, I believe. So look out for uh, uh, announcements about entering into the psychology in Seattle art contest. So yeah, parasocial relationships. The definition is, and, and this is a well-researched, topic in psychology and social psychology. It is a one-sided relationship that people form with individuals in the media, like YouTubers or podcasters or famous musicians. Now, some of you might think, well, this must be a relatively new term, right? Because this is a new phenomenon. Absolutely not. The term was coined in 1956 by Donald Horton and Richard Wohl, They wrote about a new phenomenon of people developing relationships with famous people on television, which was new at the time. So essentially, we feel loyalty and connection to media personalities at times, similar to the way we feel about our close friends and family members. For example, when Prince died, many people grieved, I certainly did, as if Prince was a family member of theirs. Even though Prince had no idea who they were. So, Bronwyn, you asked me at the end, and I'll answer that first here, you know, what is it like for you as a listener and a viewer? I absolutely have parasocial relationships with podcasters and YouTubers and all sorts of people. My current favorite podcast is called Friendly Fire, it's a local podcast about war movies. Adam, Ben, and John. Uh, talk about war movies and it's funny and it's super interesting to learn about history and it inspires me to watch these war movies and and it's just really entertaining i recently discovered it so i went back to the beginning of their archive and have been listening every day all day long <laughs> all my other podcasts are like slowly building up in my podcatcher on my phone because i i like I, I like, well, I should go back to TBTL or The Daily or this American Life or Skeptics Guide or something and I'm just like, no, I want I want to listen to more friendly fire because I just I just love this podcast and I I love Adam, Ben and John and I feel like I know them. I have conversations with them in my head sort of. I can predict what they're gonna say. So I have a parasocial relationship with them. If they stopped posting episodes, I would be really bummed out. Or if one of them got sick or, uh, God forbid, died, I would be really sad. I would be really worried about them. But they don't know me at all. (laughs) They don't know or care about me. I mean, there's a possibility that I have met John Roderick because we're a similar age, and he actually used to uh, play or still does play with Harvey Danger, and I used to hang out with those guys back in the day. So maybe I have met him, but I certainly don't remember him. But anyway... So that's my experience and and there are YouTubers like John Green. He also has a podcast, Anthropocene Reviewed, which is another wonderful podcast. I feel like I have a relationship with him. so So yeah, it's it's totally normal. It's often pathologized, I will say. People will often you know after Prince dies, basically what happens is you have some major uh, media figure dies. And all of a sudden on Facebook, it's just flooded with posts about how sad people are, pictures of people crying or something. And if you're a fan and you have a parasocial relationship with that individual, then you can relate and you don't pathologize it. But if you don't, then a lot of people tend to pathologize that. They'll just be like, huh? Like, why are you crying about Prince dying? Like, wasn't he from the 80s and – you didn't even he didn't even know you. What's wrong with you, that you would be so deluded to think that this person ever cared about you. And that's just silly. Um, it's not a pathology. It's totally normal, and I'll go into some of the literature on that in a second. But just let it be known that it's totally normal and the the attacks on it are really silly. I mean, the thing to me is like, what's it to you? that someone else has feelings about something that you can't relate to. (laughs) It's just like the fact that you can't relate to a feeling means that it's pathology. It's just, it's ridiculous. It's a very strange bias that humans have. So um, now what is that bias? Uh, If I was to speculate, the bias is just general bias against grief, general bias against emotions, general bias against sadness and crying, general bias against public displays of emotion. It's its very anti-American to do such a thing. And so, not anti-American in the political sense, but in the cultural sense. And so, we pathologize it. Now, can someone's relationship with a public figure become a problem? Absolutely. I mean, Hinkle was his name. He shot Reagan because he wanted to impress Jodie Foster. So yeah, Uh, delusions uh, schizophrenia obsessions this sort of thing on a i mean mental illness is is one thing Um, and a smaller issue that maybe is more uh, prevalent is that some people might develop relationships with uh, might develop parasocial relationships as a way of avoiding relationships and the reciprocal relationships you know like with friends and family members that they feel so alone and so isolated that the only relationships they can have is with parasocial relationships with people in the media that don't really know them that well or if someone were to over idealize someone in the media but honestly it's such a rare thing that this sort of thing happens I I bet you anything that and I, I didn't see the research on this sort of percentage but I bet you a vast majority of people who have parasocial relationships, it's it's not pathologizable. All right. So some research on parasocial relationships. DeGroote et al. 2018 study. They looked at a phenomenon that happened that's actually kind of interesting. So in 2009, the TV show House MD, if you remember that TV show, is it still on? I don't think so. There was a character, Lawrence Kutner, who was played by the guy on White Castle, you know, Harold and Kumar. Uh, he's Kumar. And so Lawrence Kutner is a character, not a real person. He's like Luke Skywalker, right? And he completed suicide on the TV show, not the actor. The actor is still alive. But the character on the TV show House completed suicide and died very suddenly and unexpectedly for the fans of the TV show. And Facebook was just kind of getting up and running at the time, 2009. And there was a big memorial group that was created shortly thereafter in memory of the fictional character. And so these researchers, DeGroote et al., in, uh, published in 2018, did a thematic analysis of the fan postings, on this memorial page and revealed evidence of people experiencing parasocial grief as they displayed emotions uh, of grief reminiscing and advocating for the character. The parasocial grief is likely to be disenfranchised as the death of the television character is not a typical way that people are being... I'm reading right here. (laughs) Um, To summarize, they did a thematic analysis and found that people were really grieving in a very in, a, in the exact same way that one would grieve someone in in their own life someone that they knew someone that they had a, a you know a reciprocal relationship with and these researchers said that this sort of grief is disenfranchised meaning that as a culture we will deny it as being valid there's a i i have a whole book that I'm working on about grief, I'll probably never finish it. And please don't ask me to finish it because it stresses me out. But I, uh, in my uh, studying and research on grief, one of the biggest things that I learned was this whole uh, uh, um, literature topic called disenfranchised grief. This is the notion that a lot of grief, valid grief that we go through is disenfranchised by culture, that culture deems it not valid. Like if your pet dies, this is changing, but uh, particularly in the past, if if you had a pet that died and you wanted to have a funeral or you were still mourning the death of that pet years later, people would be people would look at you funny. And I'll cut to the chase and say that in my investigation and in my contemplation and reading of the literature and the, and the research, grief is uh, long lasting typically, especially if you had a very close relationship, even if it was a parasocial relationship. Um, so it lasts a long time and 99.9% of grief is disenfranchised by culture, Uh, at least as I, you know, as I understand my culture. And so the, uh, so even if you say had a A parent who died, most people would not disenfranchise that at first. But if you're still grieving that person five years later in significant ways, that will be invalidated by culture. Anyway, Erickson et al 2018, did a study a look at parasocial relationships in teenagers. And basically, what they found was that uh, teenagers often have a uh, an intense, or a greater likelihood to have a greater intensity of parasocial relationships. You know, all of us can relate to this. You're 13 years old and you're just totally in love with the Backstreet Boys or (laughs) or what would people beaver? What are kids? What are are kids really in love with right now? Um, So all of us can relate or that's a known trope that when you're, 13 through 16, you just go gaga over some, uh, some public figure. And with Twitter and all these kinds of things, you're, you can, you're even more in contact with those people. Um, side note, I often think back to when I grew up as a teenager in the 80s and how there was just no information about anyone and, or I didn't know where to look anyway and so my favorite bands like depeche mode and the cure and devo and these sorts of things i just had a relationship with them through their music and through the through the cover art on the albums maybe they had liner notes but there was they were just complete mysteries to me <laughs> depeche mode in particular because they just seemed so interesting looking to me I, was, I had, you know, growing up in in a suburban Seattle area, Issaquah, which is now Sammamish now. I just had no idea what these people were. So anyway, today you can see daily posts from Bieber and feel like you're in his life. And if Bieber is sick, then you're sad. And if Bieber is upset, then you're upset. And if Bieber's happy, then you're happy. And that's totally normal, regardless of age. But teenagers are, you know, the greater likelihood of having that. And what Erickson et al. 2018 suggest is that it's a normal developmental stage for people. And they also go on to say that it's often pathologized, and they assert that it's just a normal part of teen development. So. In, in the psychological literature, there seems to be a consensus growing that parasocial relationships are normal and that they shouldn't be pathologized and that it might be an ignored element of development or even just the human experience. So, yeah, um, it's just uh, it's just ups- it upsets me. It's I, I've noticed this about myself. There's a theme in my life in where When I feel like someone is being judged unfairly, it drives me crazy. And there are the easy ones, obviously. If a black person is being judged unfairly, then that makes any person who understands reality, uh, it makes them upset. But there are many injustices that are being uh, perpetrated that aren't popular injustices, if, if you know what I mean. So, For example, people being judgy of people who have parasocial relationships or people who judge people who fall in love with objects like the Berlin Wall or the or the uh, Eiffel Tower. There's a lot of judgment about that or uh, people who feel like they are friends to a podcaster that they've never met or still mourning the death of your pet hamster after several years. There's just – people laugh at that they think it's strange or pathological something wrong with you and the whole thing is is that i always just come back to is what the f is it to you (laughs) i'm not talking to you but i'm talking to people who judge that sort of thing i just think what is it to you that that person fell in love with the berlin wall okay it's different to you but you know i bet you a lot of things are different to you because you don't know everything and you have one particular life out of seven and a half billion people, is it is it mind-boggling to imagine that your life is not the life, that your thoughts are not the thoughts, that your values are not the values? <laughs> it's just – it boggles my mind that that people would judge that sort of thing or, for that matter, being gay or trans or bi or non-binary or whatever. It's just like, what is it to you? Anyway, okay, so – Patron Bronwyn uh, says here, long-term listeners have voiced some – so I'm just reading parts of the email back to you. Long-term listeners have voiced some feelings of jealousy or feeling slightly threatened or just simple shock at the seeming overnight increase in followers. So I want to address this. I've sort of talked about it already, but I want to talk about it a little bit more in detail here. The podcast is extremely dear to me for a lot of reasons. And for those who might be worried that the podcast is going to change, it's not going to change. Not necessarily because you don't want it to change, but because I don't want it to change. (laughs) Now, I want to remind you that if you're listening to this, you probably discover the podcast at most within five years maybe a little further back, but I'm guessing 99.9% of you discovered the podcast within the past two years, or even and I'm guessing a good number of you discovered the podcast within the past two months. I've been doing this freaking thing for 12 years. And the first number of years, I was getting nothing, no emails, no accolades, no views, no, Anything I was I was it was draining money. I, I, I had to at a time when I was not uh, able to afford that sort of thing. This podcast is a labor of love for me. <laughs> um, you know, for, I love yammering into the microphone. <laughs> if if no one's listening, I would still be yammering into this microphone, as no one was listening in the beginning of this podcast. Umberto loves to yammer into a microphone. We both love it. So (laughs) there's nothing that's going to stop that. And also, my relationship with the listeners, as they have developed over the years, is still the most important thing to me. To feel like this podcast helps you is, I'm I'm just going to say possibly the most meaningful thing that I've ever done with my profession. Yes, I've helped clients face to face. And that is, that is maybe tied for first place. A close second is helping to train and supervise and support novice clinicians. But the, and I never really expected this in the beginning but the uh, people who have emailed me, or and or whom I've talked to and interviewed on the podcast, sometimes that this podcast has helped them to feel better about themselves, to have more compassion for themselves, compassion for others, to seek therapy, to be a better therapist, to be a more compassionate therapist, to uh, feel your feelings, to feel valid. Like that is my purpose on this planet. And for that to be realized, it is overwhelming to me. So my relationship with the listeners is the most important thing to me. It's not views. It's not, you know, downloads. It's not notoriety. It certainly isn't fame. I, I, I mean, for whatever sort of minor level of fame I have. Uh, I'll tell you i don't like it <laughs> i I know how famous i I'm old enough to know and studied through this podcast to some extent how famous people get abused by society you know Bieber does one thing wrong and everyone hates him like I don't want that I do a lot of stupid things i don't want I don't want any scrutiny on my life <laughs> i i don't want i I don't want people to i don't know anyway so So I just thought I'd give a shout out to all the long-term listeners just to recognize that I'm, I'm still with you. So this is, you know, in the two minutes before I started recording, I just did a quick uh, listing of all the people I could think of. And I'm really, I'm really sorry if you're not on this list and you've been a long-term person, but it, I, I just sort of thought, okay, well, what are the people that I want to give a shout out to who, um, to, to prove to you all that I haven't sold out, we got Aria, Balas, Junie, Emily, Tara, Kathleen, Leah, Liz, Jed, Jesse, Akemi, Karen, Her- Hannah, uh, who got the um, scholarship, Amy, Alyssa, Liz, another Liz, Alexis, who I have a framed card that she sent me on my wall that I can see right now. Alexis sent me a card. And. I have it framed because it was very, um, touching to me. Schultze, Jessamy, Ed, Hallie, Simon, Ethan, Nancy, Sue, Alex, Alex with an I, Louise, Tony, good old Tony, Serenity, good old Serenity, Liza, Lara, uh, Melissa, Anita, Lyndon, of course, Lyndon. He's been there from the very beginning of, of Patreon. Um, and, uh, So a lot of these people I've met, Magdalena, Justin, Carrie, Christy, Nick, and Rachel, another Rachel, uh, Marie, Mayate, who we did some very important episodes with where she talked about her therapist who uh, violated boundaries and Mayate managed to get his license removed. Robert, Natasha, whom I met, Laura, Colin, good old Colin, Danielle, Denisa, Derek, Nathan, Brent, course Bronwyn Russell Susan and Tasha good old Tasha Tasha I believe Tasha was it you that had a a tattoo with um with my uh writing you deserve it on it (laughs) or you're worth it or something um you sent me a picture of it and I have that picture um uh I I don't know if you sent me an actual picture or you sent me a a jpeg but i actually printed that out and and i have it in my office to remind me of i don't know just how cool that was that you you asked me to write out you're worth it in my handwriting and then you t- tattooed it was it you tasha i'm pretty sure it was you <laughs> anyway i do remember tasha desdemona on youtube was a major winner during the 11 hour 11th uh, anniversary show and by the way we're going to do a 12th anniversary show in august so watch out for that, August 2020, if you're listening to this in the future. So if you're not on the list, I really apologize. And let me know um, if, that I didn't leave you on the list because I care. <laughs> so these are people that when I get an email from them, and this is, you know, what kind of list is this? like 40 people. And there are hundreds of others, obviously, that have been there from the beginning, or not from the beginning, but from the past five years-ish, whom are very dear to me. But these people, when they email me, I have a relationship with them, including Bronwyn, who emailed me this. Anyway, going on with the email here. A number of YouTubers I follow have troubles coping with their position. Suddenly, thousands of people assume parasocial intimacy for them, which can only necessarily go one way. They're stalkers, trolls, inappropriate correspondence, lewd photos, gifts, proposals to deal with, not to mention how it affects online dating for them. So just chiming in for me uh for it's it's never been a problem for me. People have been great. Uh, there are some hurtful YouTube comments now and then. But aside from aside from the occasional very hurtful YouTube comment um it's never been a problem for me. I've I don't have any stalkers or that kind of thing. You go on here. When I begin listening to you, when I began listening to you, and discovered you actually do respond to emails, it was a wonderful revelation and an undeniable therapeutic experience. You held space for me deftly and succinctly. It was healing. Um, Like I said before, that makes me happy. That's why I do this. That's my purpose in life. And then you go on to ask, how is it going now with so much traffic to deal with? So I'll tell you just real briefly. For the first few weeks as... The YouTube channel started to take off, and again, I've been doing the YouTube channel for eleven years, I think, and uh, to and would get like, I don't know, fifty views a day, <laughs> that kind of thing, which essentially is zero on the YouTube uh, sort of metric. But and to be clear, my YouTube channel is not huge on YouTube standards, you know, in terms of like YouTubers. Uh, It's just like um, more popular than it was before. Let's just put it that way. But anyway, for the first few weeks as the YouTube channel was taking off, it was overwhelming. There were so many views in comparison to the past. Like, in the past, just to give you an idea, I think in the past month, we've had as many views as we had in the previous 11 years combined. (laughs) So So just think about that. Like, 11 years I think I've something like 5 million views or something. I, this is just a rough estimate but anyway so it was extremely overwhelming to me and there were so many emails and so many comments and so many requests for uh, business um, collaborations and so much spam by the way. if If you're a YouTuber you probably know this but when you when you start getting some amount of views on YouTube, then all the spammers come out of the woodwork and start trying to get you to. Um, they they tr- they try to trick you into saying that they want to be a sponsor, and then they get you to download apps, and it's it's horrible, and it's it's really annoying because they they email me directly, and I also want to be clear that for the most part the podcast is just me. My wife Stacy helps out a lot, especially with YouTube, but. I'm the only one who looks at the emails. (laughs) The email essentially goes into my... I I basically have one email address that I use for everything, (laughs) which is probably a really stupid way to live, but, but it's just me. So when I started getting all those things, I'm like, well, wait, are these people wanting to be sponsors? I don't get it. And the Internet doesn't have a ton of information to guide people like us. But anyway... Also, in those first few weeks, reality TV stars were reaching out to me and saying, I watched your video in which you analyzed me. (laughs) I was like, holy mackerel, that was not what I thought was going to happen. If I thought you were actually going to see this, I would have been cognizant, cognizant of that as I talked. Now, thank God, aside from one person they all gave feedback that said that they really appreciated what i was saying including ash by the way if you're familiar with him so that was very strange to imagine you know you're watching a reality tv show and then you just talk about them on youtube and then they direct message you on instagram <laughs> and you're just like oh wait what hey, wait but you're you're on that other side of the TV screen, you're not real people, you know. So, yeah. And at the same time, obviously, I don't need to remind anyone, the pandemic was raging at this time. It was like peak uh, deaths and peak terror and horrific news reports. I mean, so all of that was happening at the exact same time. Now, I'll tell you that it felt good uh, to have some success to get some recognition. But it felt really exposing. I felt really exposed. Because the podcast, although has had some popularity has basically been below most radars, (laughs) there will be people who will discover the podcast, and email me and go, I've been listening to podcasts for 15, 10 years. And I can't believe it took me this long to discover your podcast. So, you know, because there's just so many podcasts and there's so many YouTube channels. Anyway, and then all of a sudden, boom, I was getting all this exposure. And and um, and I'll tell you a little side note. So I have a Google alert for my name, you know, for uh, my name, because as a therapist, and if you're a therapist out there or any sort of, a clinician, you probably should have a Google alert for your name, because you, you never know what's going to pop up. I, I always tell this story as an example as to why you should Google yourself, or, or have a Google alert for yourself. Years ago, uh, this, I don't know, eight years ago or something, I googled myself and found that someone was using my name on a porn site as a username or something. You know, it was like, I don't know what porn... It was sort of a obscure porn site, but... Or maybe it was a porn form. I don't know. Porn-related. And they were using my name, which is such a weird thing. Like, why... <laughs> Either the person knew me and just decided to use my name, which would be very strange, especially back then. Or it was just a weird... Like, their first name was Kirk, and they owned a Honda. And they're just like, well, you know, I'll just do Kirk Honda. And... I didn't like that because at the time if anyone were to google me, say they wanted to hire me as a therapist or whatever and they came across that then it would look funny. Not that there's anything wrong with porn, but it just wasn't something that at the very least I would look stupid for using my full name on a porn site, <laughs> you know. Anyway, not that there's, any, you know, sex positivity, nothing wrong with porn. But I emailed the you know because you can email through the site to that person i said by the way you're using my name which is to my knowledge there's only two people on this planet who have who have my name there's another person that's i think 10 years younger than younger than me in california who has my name and i feel bad for him because um i've taken you know all the anyway (laughs) but i emailed him and he actually took it down he changed his name so um that's just anyway. So I got a Google alert that there was some talk about me on Reddit all of a sudden, which was never the case before. Uh, you know, a couple months ago, and so I clicked on it as I usually do, just to see what's happening. Because if people are imagine, you know, on Reddit, people are talking about you. You're you're going to want to find out what they're saying, right? So I went there and I thought, you know, they're probably just posting. You know, Kirk Honda talks about this or that. Well, someone had posted on Reddit one of my reaction videos. I think it was a 90-day one. And there was a bunch of people talking about how I had been – they were accusing me of telling people to post on Reddit. They were like, Kirk Honda must be telling everyone to post on Reddit because we're getting too many posts on on Reddit about his reaction videos. And so we got to stand up and – I can't remember the exact what wording but they were basically saying as moderators we have to we have to make sure that Kirk Honda doesn't get into this subreddit and all this kind of stuff if you're familiar with Reddit you know what I'm talking about. And it was um that was that was upsetting on so many levels. One was that I was my fans were bothering other people because I was getting popular. <laughs> And I I, I desperately wanted to reach out to those moderators who hated me and just be like, look, it's not my fault. I didn't tell them to post this on Reddit. It never would have crossed my mind to tell people to spam Reddit with my stupid videos. So um, and then someone started making fun of my forehead. (laughs) Like some one guy said, yeah, I've. I never want to see that guy's forehead again, and then I, and the, and you know I'll tell you it gets under your skin. And now when I look at when I'm editing my reaction videos, I'm like, is my forehead too big in this video? I can't imagine being a woman being te- torn apart on YouTube about the way you look this way and that. It just it just you think it doesn't get under your skin. You think like, well, you know, internet people, who cares? If you're a public figure of any kind out there, you know it, it, it does get under your skin. We are not uh, – we did not evolve mechanisms to categorize uh, things into, in those ways. It's, oh, that's a stupid internet person. And just side note, by the way, over the years I've paid – it whenever a podcaster or a famous person like Bradley Cooper or someone talks about reviews and internet talk about them, I pay very close attention because I want to know the secrets to how to cope with it because I've been dealing with it for years. It's, again, it's mainly on YouTube. The comments are, for a long time, we just didn't even have the YouTube comments on because it was just so toxic. And anyway, so I would pay attention. And a lot of the uh, famous people, when I would hear them talk, their conclusion was they they just don't even read it. So Bradley Cooper, uh, Robert De Niro, um, Amy Adams, these people, For the, whenever I hear them talk, for the most part, it, they'll say, oh, no, 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 never read your reviews, never, never go to YouTube, never read Rotten Tomatoes, because it's devastating. Um, and so it, to have that ramp up uh, ac- across multiple platforms, Reddit, YouTube, all these other places, I it was very exposing and it wasn't it wasn't a happy thing for me i liked this podcast being as small as it was because of that reason now i will tell you that as the podcast grows it gives me potentially even more time to spend on this podcast i hope you re- you've noticed that my podcast episodes have actually have actually there was a there's a few weeks there where i'd release an episode an audio only episode uh, every day, uh, it was mostly because I just—I don't know—with the pandemic and everything, I—I I just that's what I did to cope was just to record episodes and episodes. Um, and I've been doing these reaction videos, so I—I um, I haven't slowed down, and I won't slow down. Anyway, you can't make me slow down. <laughs> but anyway, so for the first number of weeks, it it was it was pretty interesting. There were. Positive feelings and scary feelings, but this week I will say that my feelings have finally returned to normal, maybe even just the past few days i f- I finally feel like I can get back to basics. Um, I'm getting back to patron emails. I'm you know going back to my deep dive research. I'm doing a whole deep dive on loneliness and uh, avoidant personality disorder and all those kinds of things and so things are returning to normal. I'm still going to do the reaction videos, but um, I'm figuring out how to kind of divvy up my time here. But remember that the core of my profession, along with my clients and close second, my students and trainees, is the audio only podcast that you listen to from your podcatcher on your phone. You know, like I said, just me yammering into the microphone And you listening to me yammer into your ears while you do the laundry or you drive to the store or you go on your run or whatever, that is the core of my profession for a lot of reasons. Um, You know, I'll tell you while I'm on the topic, a lot of people had suggested that I do YouTube videos a long time ago they they were like you got to get on youtube man and you got to do short little clips you know 3 minute 5 minute little videos and i over the years would say okay and i it would fe- it always felt like a chore like oh, okay i got to get the camera out got to make sure my hair doesn't look stupid lighting is good how do i get the microphone in the shot cuz right now like i'm i'm basically in my pajamas i'm slouched over Um, I'm sure my hair looks really funny right now. (laughs) Um, I can pick my nose while I talk to you on this audio thing and you don't know. Um, you know, there's so many nice things about doing an audio only that disappears when you do video. And, uh, I would occasionally dip into video and, uh, would just be like, oh God, I don't like to do it. Um, I don't know if you know this, but for a little bit of time, I started Saying, well, you know, I got because I finally at the eleventh um, uh, anniversary show, I I got all these cameras set up so we could do a live show on YouTube, and uh, that whole process got me familiar with webcams because I, you know, for a long time I didn't even have a webcam, so when people wanted to Skype with me and stuff, I'd have to like open a box and pull out this webcam and hook it up to my desktop computer, <laughs> like it was a whole thing. So, it, I even though I really love taking video. If you, if you're close to me in in my personal life, you know that I take video of everything. <laughs> I've been taking video of stuff since I was a young child. Um, I just love recording my life. But when it comes to public stuff or internet, you know, podcasting stuff, I just didn't like it. But anyway, so you know, the videos that I'm doing on YouTube are not it's not the comfy it (laughs) i'll I'll end with this so the youtube videos and the flashy stuff if you will is like being on stage and playing in like a hair metal band like motley (laughs) crew it's a big production and there's a lot of bells and whistles and pyrotechnics and everything has to be working right. And But when it comes to me doing what I'm doing right now, I can wake up in the morning, look at my emails, take some notes, you know, quietly in my little office here, and just start recording and feel like it's a cozy little one-person acoustic show compared to a Motley Crue show. (laughs) It's just so much more comfortable. All right, let's go on to the next email. But first, let's take a break. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, please do so now. Go to patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast. There's a lot of benefits to it including you don't have to listen to any ads anymore when you become a patron and you get access to all of our best episodes that are only available to patrons. Okay, this next email is from an anonymous listener. She writes, Hello, you said that people with attachment issues during one of the Darcy videos will have a Sophie's Choice when it comes to childhood trauma processing them or me? What does it mean to blame both others and yourself? So I'm not exactly sure what the question is asking, but I'll just comment on this because I think other people had questions too. So in that video, I was talking about how when we're children and our parents aren't doing a good enough job or are for whatever reason, whether it's circumstance or the parents have issues or whatever. A one-year-old, a two-year-old, a three-year-old is not being attuned to enough. They are not getting enough attention. They're not getting a- enough love. They're being abused. The child has a Sophie's Choice because they have to choose between one bad thing or another bad thing. they That's the definition of Sophie's Choice is that in the movie Sophie's Choice, she had to choose between saving If I remember right, her daughter or her son, like either one of her kids was going to get killed and she had to make a choice. So it's a choice, but it's a terrible, terrible choice because when you raise kids well enough, they don't have to make that choice. They're allowed to believe in themselves and develop a sense of self-worth and a sense of self, a sense of who they are, a sense of how they feel, a sense of um, that they matter and what they want, and that is valued in the world, and then they value it themselves. And the child is, when they're raised well, they learn to trust other people and like other people and believe that the world is a good enough place for them, and that they can depend on people and reach out and be emotional and have people care about them. But to the child who is neglected, abused, mistreated, uh, created in a, or lives in a chaotic environment, then that child has a choice, has to make a choice between believing, in that this, believing that the situation is their fault or believing that the situation is their parent's fault or their caregiver's fault. And either choice is going to result in bad things, but they have to make that choice because the world is a bad place for them. So they have to make a choice. Why is this happening? It feels like it's my fault, but it kind of looks like it's my parents fault. And all this is happening, for the most part, subconsciously for the young child, because it can often be even pre verbal to the child. And when a child determines that it is their parents fault, what they do is they say, Well, I'm good, and my parents are bad. And I can't depend on the outside world. And Children don't discriminate. What they say is everyone aside from me I cannot depend on. They don't say just my parents. I, you know surely I can depend on my aunt or my teacher at school. No. They decide early in life everyone outside the self is to be distrusted and they are suspicious and they are dangerous and they are to be avoided. And so the child develops a style called avoidant attachment, which is to avoid all outside people. And when you when they when the individual when the child has an attachment reaction, a threat or a concern for reassurance, they don't reach out, because they've determined that other people cannot be dependent on. They still have dependency, they still have emotions, they still have neediness on the inside. But they will not express it because a long time ago they determined everyone else cannot be trusted. Now, the consequence to this is quite extreme as the child grows up and is launched from a terrible situation in their home to the broad world. There's a lot of people in the broad world who are to be, who can be trusted, but that individual has given up a long time ago. And unless they become aware of it or circumstances make it so that they begin to trust other people, then they might live their entire life never reaching out to other people. There's all these other implications as well, which I won't go into because you can listen to my attachment deep dive for those implications. But one implication that can happen is that the child, because they depend on the self at the age of two and beyond, they are so afraid of the world, they're two years old and they're like, okay, I can't depend on people outside of me, but I can only depend on the self, but I'm only two years old and I'm really quite afraid. Well, I have, well, how do I deal with that? How do I deal with the fact that the only one looking after me is me and I'm two years old and I don't know what's happening? Well, I have to trick myself into believing that I am super capable of, Because otherwise, I'm going to be terrified. And I have to become extremely capable in the world. I have to become very competent very quick. So sometimes these kids become extremely competent and extremely independent, pathologically independent, and also potentially narcissistic, meaning that they have to uphold a grandiose self in order to cope with the fears of being alone. The other choice that is available to the child is to say, "Okay, it's it's not them, it's me. The reason why I'm being mistreated is it's my fault." So, what this does is it preserves the esteem in other people that other people are good and that the world is good and that other people have your best interest in mind and other people have the ability to solve your problems. But the reason why they're not solving your problems and not paying attention to you is because I'm not a good person. That's why this is happening. It's it's my fault. I'm a bad person. I'm not good enough. I am insufficient somehow. There's something deeply wrong with me. That's why this is happening. And what we call this is often is preoccupied attachment, where the child early on learns to Feel bad about the the self, and also to constantly reach out for attachment, um, security in other people. They can't turn to the self because the self is bad and wrong. So why would they turn to the self? They have to turn to others. And obviously, this has a lot of consequences later in life. The person can be very quote unquote needy. They can be very dependent. They can be very demanding. They can be very reactive and push people away from them, even though they're trying to get to them. And the person has uh, virtually no self, and it's on a spectrum, but at the higher end of the spectrum, the person has no self. They don't know who they are. They don't know how they feel. They don't know what they are because they've never been given that chance. So that is the Sophie's choice that comes with childhood trauma early in life. I hope that answers that question. Okay, let's move on. Okay, this next email is from Sarah from Columbus. She writes In watching your reaction videos to the relationship on 90 Day Fiancé with Darcy and Jesse, why does a person with Jesse's attachment issues not move on and end his ties to Darcy? Why would he continue to interact with her and contact her? So, chime in here. If you've never seen this TV show, there's a couple, Darcy and Jesse. Jesse is from Holland, I believe. Darcy's from Massachusetts, I believe, and or Connecticut. And Jesse is. Uh, Darcy and Jesse have a very volatile relationship. They fight very frequently, uh, s- sometimes throughout the day, every day. And Darcy uh, is re- more per- perhaps more relatable because she. Is, she has she has that low self esteem. She has that what seems to be preoccupied attachment or dependent attachment or something. She, whenever things go wrong, she plummets into a, a an abyss of low self esteem, which lends itself to the preoccupied attachment style. Jesse comes across as extremely independent and demanding, and perhaps controlling and insulting and frequently in a bad mood. And so what a lot of people look at this situation, they, well, I get why Darcy is, is insecure. And I get why she's vulnerable because she just, she doesn't have very high self-esteem, but Jesse seems to have a lot of self-esteem. And so why doesn't Jesse just move on? Why does, cause there's all this evidence that Jesse seemed really, because there are many times where Jesse just seemed to hold Darcy in such contempt. Jesse, he seemed to just hate Darcy during certain moments. And it looked like, well, Jesse is going to move move on, but then he wouldn't. He would often come back. And you ask yourself, why is he coming back? He seems to hate her so much. Well, obviously, I can't know because I would have to assess them. But in general, when people exhibit this behavior, it's usually because They have deep attachment needs. And just because Jesse comes across as very strong and independent and he's the demanding, contemptuous, controlling one, that doesn't mean that he doesn't have just as much, if not more, attachment insecurity as Darcy does. One way that that people will protect themselves from their own attachment insecurity and their attachment terror is to trick themselves and trick everyone around them that – they are independent that they don't need people and that they're that everything is fine. Now, Darcy, like I said, came across as more the pursuer, preoccupied person. Jesse at first came across as an avoidant person, but as time went on, he he started to look more like a preoccupied person. I obviously can't know that without talking with him, but he the preoccupied narrative, the way that we talk about preoccupied people it tends to be genderized as a as the female right the the woman who chases the woman who's needy, the woman who does all this sort kind of thing but but that is a bias in my field actually to some extent and I suppose I've internalized that. Being preoccupied there are there are many many males cis males who are preoccupied but it's going to look a little different because of gender because of the male need to be in control, the male need to be strong and emotionless and the male aggression thing. Now, can females be aggressive and controlling a hundred percent? Believe me. So uh, Jesse came across to me as perhaps avoidant in the beginning, but as time went on, it, it seemed like maybe more preoccupied. So he in his way chased darcy but in his male genderized way again it's just speculation i would have to talk with them and hear what they thought about that sort of thing so that's if you're familiar with those two people that's just something to think about and the the evidence that i saw that pointed to that was particularly toward the end when of their relationship when he was just so easily triggered because for avoidant people, avoidant, insecure people, when push comes to shove, they tend to just walk away. They tend to just be like, OK, this is dumb. I'm out of here. And they, they'll they just they'll just take themselves out of the equation, even though on the inside they're really struggling. Their response to attachment threats and disruptions is usually just walk away, you know. You can depend on the self. Other people are stupid. Just get away from people. Jesse didn't do that. When Jesse and Darcy got into a fight, Jesse stayed with her, you know, and really engaged in conversation with her, I think out of a desperate need to chase attachment security in his way, which was largely um, dysfunctional as, as far as we could tell. Sarah from Columbus goes on to ask in the email, what is a healthy way to distance yourself from a person like him who doesn't respect boundaries? So the larger question here is, if you have someone in your life who is controlling and um, com- demanding and threatening to you and insulting and contemptuous and breaks you down and what people colloquially will call gaslight you, what what do you do? Ha- how do you – what's a healthy way to distance yourself from a person like him? Well, that's very that's – there's a lot of varied responses. I could say this. It really depends on the situation. In the extreme, you want to go to a domestic violence or intimate partner violence advocate and specialist to help you extract yourself from that relationship. And you can call the – all you got to do is Google – domestic violence hotline and you can call someone or chat with someone right away. So, so you want to do that right away. And I know some of you listeners are in situations like that. Even if you aren't ready to leave the person, call that hotline. You need that support. So, so, so there's that you deserve it. And sometimes those kinds of actions can actually lead to improving the marriage, meaning, cause I've treated couples where one of the person was abusive And I have helped those couples to reduce the abusive behavior by the, by the abuser. And uh, so it does, you know, we don't have to follow this model that always says you have to leave. It's up to you. It's always up to you. Uh, Sometimes it does mean that you want to leave, but you know, it's your choice. So, so in the extreme, you want to get a team of people that you talk to well before you try to distance yourself from that person, you want to do a lot of prep, and a lot of um, contingency planning, this kind of thing. In the less extreme, then and you're not in an unsafe situation, but you're with someone who is volatile emotionally and controlling in some ways, the healthy ways to distance yourself, again, are varied there are many different strategies one is i there's this thing going around the internet i can't remember what it's called like the gray rock uh, approach i can't i think that's what it's called gray stone or something which is a notion that i would that i came ac- across organically without having heard anyone else uh do this i actually learned this in my personal life <laughs> Uh, which I shouldn't laugh about. It's actually quite traumatic for me. But the solution that I learned long ago with people who will target you and it and everything you do doesn't seem to help. You know, you you keep trying to reason with them. You you try to manage them, and nothing works. It it just perpetuates the trauma and the terror and the pain. One strategy. That works for some people, and it has worked for me, is to become a gray rock, to become a gray stone, meaning that you become so uninteresting to that person that they just stop paying attention to you. Now, this depends on you not living with the person, blah, 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 but I've used this to great effect. It's not easy, but it works. When you become a non-element in those people's lives, then often that just means that their targeting behavior just gets focused elsewhere. And then you just slowly back yourself away and never have to deal with it again. There's that. There's obviously just confronting the person and saying, look, when you do that sort of thing to me, it really hurts me. And I want you to stop going to therapy, these kinds of things. Anyway. Yeah, so I hope that answers your question, Sarah from Columbus. Let's go on to another email. Okay, this next email is also about some of my reaction videos. I'm sort of looking through my email list and looking for things that have to do with the reaction videos, because if you're not into that, then maybe you won't listen to this. But So I'm sort of lumping that together. But this next email is from upper-tier patron Melissa. She writes, In Love is Blind, Jessica struggles with having a sense of self. What are ways she can be more self-aware, attuned with her emotions and overcome this struggle? So if you don't watch the show, there's this woman that I speculated did not have a strong sense of self due to early childhood issues. Now, normally I'm saying total speculation. Take my you know, speculation with a grain of salt. But with this situation, Jessica actually reached out to me and said that she, that I had analyzed her perfectly, <laughs> that I totally nailed it. So so we have that. So Jessica confirmed that my discussion of her was spot on. So anyway, but this, so the larger question is, when you don't have a sense of self, how do you develop it? So the first thing I'll say is listen to all my episodes on sense of self. There's, there's a number of episodes, particularly the episodes where I talk with Bob about it because he had issues and somewhat has issues with his sense of self. And so to hear him talk in a very um, personal way about what it's like is helpful, not only to normalize everyone out there, but also to see a way through it. Cause he's a very intelligent and talented therapist himself. So, the the way you're um, phrasing the question is is a little uh, misleading because it makes it seem like it's easy. You say, "You know, what are ways that someone with a sense with some? What are ways that someone who lacks a sense of self? What are ways that they can become more self-aware, attuned to their emotions, and overcome the struggle?" Well, I guess it's not misleading. I guess it, so. T- I take that back. <laughs> Uh, it just anyway my point is is that sense of self is something that actually eluded me as a clinician for many many years i didn't really understand i remember hearing about us a, a sense of self early in my career and being kind of annoyed with the phrase because i no one ever really defined it for me i never heard it really just fully described to me what they meant by that. And I'm not even sure if they really knew what they meant by it when they were using it. But as I got to know more personality and psychodynamic literature and developmental literature and attachment literature, I began to, and and when I started actually thinking about myself and other people around me and my clients and testing this out, I I developed a robust understanding of what sense of self refers to, which is when we are young, we are we don't we don't have a sense of self right you're you're three months old you're six months old you don't know who you are yet as as we as we say but to be more specific you have an undifferentiated sense of your emotions and those around you so when you feel an emotion you developmentally you don't really get that your emotion is not the emotion so when you when you're nine months old, and you're crabby, you think the world is crabby, because you don't have a sense that there's a boundary between your emotions and the rest of the world and other people. So that's one thing to think about, as I move forward here. Another thing to think about is that, as we grow two years old, three years old, we have all the range of emotions, we have sadness and anger and pain and joy, and jealousy, we have disgust, we have all in fear, we have all the emotions in intense degrees, and we don't really know that it's happening at first. So without people to help guide us with those emotions, we don't know what's happening. You're two years old and you're terrified. Well, all you know, all you are aware of it is terror. You, you, can, you don't even have the language for it yet. Well, it takes attuned parents and caregivers who are there to say to a child, right now you are experiencing fear or right now you're experiencing pain or joy or disgust or jealousy. That's what you're feeling right now. And you do that enough to a child and they learn, oh, okay, there's a word for that. And other people talk about being angry, and that's what anger looks like in their world, in their body language. This is what anger on a scale from 1 to 10, uh, you know, this is what anger 3 feels like. This is what anger 7 feels like. The child gets to know that. And all parents just naturally do this when—I mean, not all parents. Good parents naturally do this. It's just an instinct— I believe that parents have they they want to there's just an impulse to reflect to children what what's happening for them. Now some parents were raised very poorly and have their own problems which interfere with their empathy and their attunement to children. And what happens is the child is never given a chance to know their own emotions. And so they're 15, 35 years old And they still aren't really aware of their emotions. And that might sound weird to people out there. If you do have a sense of self and you do recognize, okay, right now I'm feeling fear. Right now I'm feeling anger. Right now I'm feeling sadness. There are people out there who have been mistreated who don't have the ability to do that. So, and there's a number of different uh, manifestations of that. For some people that they just will say, I'm overwhelmed. They'll, They'll just be like, if you ask them how they feel, they'll be like, I don't know, I'm just overwhelmed, because they can't differentiate between different feelings. Or other people will say, I don't have emotions. I'm I'm generally emotionless. And sometimes that's true, but usually it's not. And usually it's just that the person is just completely unaware of the emotions that they're having. So, so there's that, is a, emotional awareness. The other is how to feel about yourself and get in touch with your own needs. Our emotions inform us of our needs. The way we get to know our needs and the way we get to know how to meet our needs is through our emotions. When you are being mistreated, then you feel hurt and then you get angry and then you want to do something about it. Someone in kindergarten takes your, your sack lunch from you and you're, your feelings are hurt. And then you get angry, and you go tell the teacher. Well, if you haven't been attuned to, and someone takes your lunch, then you don't know what feeling you're having. You're just having a feeling you're 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 freaking out, or you're being overwhelmed. And you don't know what's going on. You you don't know what it has to, to, to do with. And so there's no way to know about your needs, to be more specific to adults is you're in a relationship with someone, and deep down underneath all of your awareness, is a, a, a feeling of hurt because you feel distance from your spouse. But because you are never attuned to, you aren't aware of your emotions. And so emotions are bubbling up, but you don't know what they are, and you have no way of interpreting the bubbling up of some kind of physical sensation or some kind of some emotion is happening to me. I don't know what it is. And I have no idea where it's coming from. Whereas when you are attuned to and you have a sense of self, that sense of self means you have a sense of who you are and what your feelings are. And so you would say, okay, I'm feeling I'm feeling I'm in a bad mood right now. Why is that? Well, I don't know. I've been kind of just I feel I feel a longing to be close to my spouse. That must mean that my bad mood is due to the fact that I feel some general distance from my spouse right now. Okay, well, now I know my needs, and now I know what to do to solve this this pain in my stomach, which is to put work into bonding with my spouse tonight. If you don't have a sense of self, if you're not given that when you're young, you don't have that. And so so you ask, patron upper-tier upper patron Melissa, what are ways that someone can become more self-aware well, this is a very, very tough thing because years and decades of neur- neuronal development made it such that you can't really get it, you can't have easy access to those emotions. It's not just a matter of paying attention to your emotions when you're 35 and trying to get a sense of self, it's a matter of building those neurological connections to your emotional centers and getting to understand those feelings perhaps for the first time in your life. Think of it like if you're a child and you aren't taught how to speak at a certain age that of development when kids usually learn how to speak a language. To learn a language later in life for the very first time is very hard. Or I guess to be more common, for me to learn a Chinese accent, a Cantonese accent or something, it would be very difficult for me to do that because the time has passed where my brain is plastic enough to learn that accent. I, during that time, learned a Seattle accent. And so my neurons are kind of stuck. Well, building a sense of self is maybe not that severe, but it's in that direction. Because I've worked with clients on building a sense of self for years, and they'll get like 25% down the road. But I'm here to tell you, 25% sense of self is better than 2% sense of self. So it takes a long time, but it's worth it. So the, the primary action is to ask yourself, what do I want right now? What am I feeling right now? So the, lo- the more you stare into the self, the more things start to come into focus, And you need to do it relationally as well. People need to ask you, how are you feeling right now? What do you want? So there has to be a campaign, usually directed by a therapist, or optimally directed by a therapist, where the therapist, the self, the family members, everyone around this person frequently checks in, how are you feeling right now, and what do you want? Now, in the beginning, the client will not have any answers to that. And that will be distressing, and the therapist helps them with that. It's okay. You don't know. It's normal. But let's keep asking, you know, is there anything down there? Because there is – there are th- – you know, some people, when they look into themselves, they don't see anything and they get scared. And it's very it's, – it can become extremely upsetting to people. They'll feel empty on the inside. You'll hear, hear people say that. Borderline people will say that. They'll just be like, right, I feel empty on the inside. But they're not empty. What it is is I use the metaphor of you're staring into a bedroom with the lights off, and you don't see anything, but that doesn't mean there isn't a bed and a desk and posters on the wall and carpet and whatever there's things in there, but the lights are off you can't you just can't see it doesn't it, it just because it's a dark room doesn't mean it's a giant abyss it just means you can't see what's in there and so asking yourself, what do I want? How do I feel?" having other people ask you, what do you want, how do you feel?" is akin to turning up the dimmer switch on the light switch that takes a long time but it works in my experience also you have to have secure attachments to feel safe enough to even explore that kind of thing if you're in a constant state of terror and loneliness it's going to be hard to pay attention to these sorts of things so that is my answer to that complicated question i hope that makes sense let me know what you think All right, well, that does it for that episode in which I answered patron emails. Uh, If you're watching on YouTube, comment below, what do you think about a sense of self? What do you think about Jesse? What do you think about the Sophie's Choice of Attachment? Um, From what I understand, some people don't really understand the term Sophie's Choice, or maybe I'm using it wrong, Um, so I'm going to stop using it. I only used it because the patron or the emailer asked me about that. Um, I I guess the term that I should use is to be more clear is it's a a damned if you do, damned if you don't choice or a a bad choice, a choice between two lesser evils, right? Um, uh, You know, you're trying to choose the lesser of two evils, as they say. Anyway, and everyone out there, please take care of yourself and take care of other people. And allow yourself to flourish. Get in touch with yourself. Everyone actually can benefit from this. No no one is no one has a perfect sense of self. Everyone can benefit by frequently asking themselves, How do I feel right now? What do I want? It's very important to know because when your needs are bubbling up and you don't pay attention to them or, or you don't put effort into meeting those needs, bad things happen. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it, you really, really do you.